Tēnā koto katoa and hello everybody. Welcome to the Lentil Intervention Podcast. My name is Ben Adelberg and I'm coming to you from Tamaki Makaura, Auckland. Tēnē kamihi ke te mana whenua o Aotearoa. And we acknowledge the local tribal authorities of New Zealand. And g'day, I'm Emma Strutt and I'm currently coming to you from Durrambul country in Queensland. Before we dive into our conversation today, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We have a cracker of an episode ahead with another returning popular guest and for me personally quite timely. As a um, side note, I've just started reading Greta Thunberg's The Climate Book and already within chapter three, they're short chapters, um, a contribute talks about civilization and extinction, which uh, also has some very specific reference to New Zealand. So Emma, we return to an important conversation on biodiversity and of course, who better than Corey? Of course. So today we're very lucky to be chatting with Professor Corey Bradshaw, who's joined us previously in season two, episode 10. So please check that out if you haven't already, because it was an incredibly important conversation. But for those of you who are newer around here, Corey is the Matthew Flinders Professor of Global Ecology and Director of the Global Ecology Laboratory at Flinders University. Professor Bradshaw has hundreds of peer-reviewed articles to his name, 13 book chapters and three books. Very busy man. Um, today we're going to mainly be chatting about one recent paper in particular, but I'm not going to give it all away in the intro. So we'll bring you on, Corey. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. And I just want to say to Manina Pudni Nadlu Tapiti Alakat Nadlu Karnayataka in Parenti. That's Ghana. So I'm coming to you from Ghana country in the Adelaide Hills. Actually, I'm on the border between Paramank and Ghana country. A little bit uncertain where, where the borders are really, but um, just uh, that was uh, essentially saying that uh, I acknowledge um, the Ghana people that uh, on whose land I am today. And thank you. Brilliant. Good. And uh, not forgetting, also, you were a contributor to a season wrap up that we did. I can't even remember which season it was. Season two, I think, uh, where we spoke about personal climate stories and impacts. And you had a wonderful story about, you know, how you also see that impacting your daughter um so certainly to our listeners let's go back to that episode as well all of our episodes if you haven't heard them or want to listen to them again um cory you got a, an intro from emma but just to our listeners uh very briefly what do you do well these days i guess i'm mostly a mathematician <laughs> um I don't say that in front of mathematicians, of course, but uh, I do a lot of maths and a lot of coding. And what we try to do is put together virtual worlds to, to investigate uh, plausible alternate futures under different scenarios of intervention. That's just a fancy way of saying creating a model that uh, allows us to see into the future and look at what the relative effects of making certain decisions might be on society and, and life and the biosphere in general. Okay, so Emma alluded to the fact we're going to explore a paper that you recently published in, I think it was December last year. But before we get there, let's let's talk about some foundations, set some foundations here in terms of terminology, concepts, and so on. So biodiversity, let, let's start off super basic. What does yep. biodiversity actually mean? And why is it so important to the health of the planet? Okay, that's 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 quite a something to unpack. Actually, that the word comes from biological diversity, so it's kind of a shortening. 
I can't remember when it was first used, but it's been around the traps for a while. And you, you think about it quite uh, superficially. You think, oh, it's just you know the number of species on the planet, but that's only one measure of diversity. So diversity could be genetic diversity. It could be a simple just number of species, but even that, you know, there we get a lot of hybridization. For example, in Australia, you know, there's anywhere between 400 and 900 species of eucalypts because it's basically just one giant genetic gradient because they interbreed. It could be phylogenetic diversity, which is the evolutionary history, how long something's been around on the planet. Some species have been around more or less for hundreds of millions of years. Others have only been around for, you know, a couple ten thousand. Uh, and the uniqueness therein, it could be how quickly that diversity changes over space and time. We call that beta diversity. So that's like a gradient of diversity. So it really depends on what you measure. Now, why is it important? Well, this entire planet feeds off of itself. Now, to, to, that, that's a very blunt way of describing it, but essentially... All the species that exist, exist because of the species before them and that are around them today exist. So they create niches that can be exploited through evolutionary processes, basically to feed, reproduce, die, and then continue the, the life cycle without all of those species creating elements of another species niche, the things that they need to survive, they wouldn't be around. A great example is pollinators and plants, flowering plants. 90% of flowering plants require an animal pollinator to, repro to reproduce, to complete their life cycle. Without those pollinators, they wouldn't be able to reproduce. Then they would die, obviously. Uh, parasites and hosts. Parasites need hosts to complete their life cycles. If they don't have the hosts, the parasites die. Uh, predators need prey. If they have no prey to eat, they have no food, they die. It's, it's really that kind of simplistic. I mean, it, there's many, many subtleties and, and feedbacks and nonlinear relationships between all these species. But essentially, we know that the more diversity there is, no matter how you measure it, generally speaking, the more resilient a system or a community of interacting species is to an outside disturbance. That could be anything from like a bushfire or a cyclone or cutting down a forest or whatever that we constitute as some sort of force that causes death. If there's lots of species, then chances are you're going to be less likely to come uh, to be susceptible to that particular disturbance. Or from if you even go outside of the species concept and you look more at the community of species, all these species perform different what we call ecological functions. Some process atmospheric gases, some like plants turn carbon dioxide into oxygen, right? Uh, we turn oxygen into carbon dioxide, <laughs> animal respiration. Uh, so the uh, combined effect of all these ecological functions, they have some redundancy in the system, just like engineers will put in, say, triple redundancy when they build a bridge, right? Just in case a shock comes along, the bridge doesn't fall down at the first sign of a problem. There is ecological redundancy in a system. So if you lose one or two species, there's probably a few more that do more or less the same function and keep things ticking over. But at some point, and this is, this is what is commonly misunderstood, is that you can get a lot of resilience and a lot of redundancy in the system, and you can have loss and loss and loss, and things don't really look like they're changing that much. And all of a sudden, some key species that no longer has any redundancy is lost, and the whole thing crumples into a heap.
So it's not it's not this gradual process. It tends to be very um, unnotice, unnoticeable, followed by a catastrophe. And and that's I guess the situation we're heading into now is that we're in many systems are at that sort of collapse stage because they've lost most of their ecological redundancy. That was a long-winded answer. <laughs> what is biodiversity? <laughs> it, was, it was a good one, though. It's important to understand these features. And like as you said, no, like, say one animal goes extinct. Um, it's very heartbreaking, but it, it's, it's not in a silo. There's going to be flow-on effects. And that kind of brings us to a talking point um, that you mentioned in your paper that we'll get into in a minute. But the, the concept of co-extinctions and trophic cascades, um, what does the listener need to know about that interconnectedness? And, and do you think that the scientific literature to date has actually adequately addressed these concepts when assessing bio, bio, biodiversity? Uh, yes and no. Uh, everything I say is guarded and conditional, of course, because I'm a scientist. <laughs> the, 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 I'll answer the last part of your question first. Have we been able to incorporate this complexity of interaction among species properly in our forecasts of what the future might look like? Generally speaking, no. And that's largely because being able to gather all the interaction data between species across the planet is pretty much impossible. So most forecasts have been based on very simple things like uh, the thermal tolerance of a species, how hot a species can stand. Uh, I know, like for example, people in, in Adelaide will be familiar with flying foxes dropping out of trees dead when it's 45 degrees for three or four days in a row. Um, they're just, they're gray-headed flying foxes. They're not used to those kind of heat that those temperatures it's usually the young ones that literally drop off the perch and you can see them sort of piling up dead bats it's not a pretty thing um so we we every species has a thermal tolerance niche so how much how cold it can, they can stand and how hot they can stand now they can adapt to that for example if it's really really hot you can burrow on in the ground and stay cool a lot of australian species do that or you can be nocturnal just avoid the sun entirely sleep during the day, or you can um, seek water, you know, you can have a cool bath. I mean, humans do the same thing. We, we seek air-conditioned rooms and we uh, jump in the pool when it's really hot, or we put on lots of clothes and turn on a heater when it's really warm. Animals have some adaptation, but not, not entirely able to do all of those things that we have because of technology. Nonetheless, there is a point when things die. And we generally say, okay, well, if the we can measure that pretty easily, the physiological maximum in a species. So it comes down to the specific physiology of the species. It's fairly predictable. We can pump that through a model and say, okay, these species are likely to exceed their thermal tolerances at this point in the future under this emission scenario. And that means this proportion of species will go extinct as a result. Now that's just the, what we call direct extinction from climate change. That's the the ones that succumb directly to the increased temperature. The second part of that, of course, is that, as we were discussing earlier, because of species dependent on those species that have gone extinct, ultimately their food or some other aspect that they require in their life cycle is also going to go uh, the way of that original species, that, that one that succumbed to the direct extinction. And then those species ultimately go co-extinct. Now, a good example that a lot of Australians anyway might be aware of is um, these, we call these uh, 
legacy trees and paddocks. You know, you'll get huge gum trees, just remnants in, in big paddocks that have been paddocks for hundreds of years. And slowly over time, all the big trees around them have been removed. And eventually you get this sort of one tree in the middle of a huge paddock. And the, the nearest closest uh, individual tree of the same species could be 20, 30, 50, 100 kilometers away. Well, trees obviously uh, need to reproduce as well. They're living beings. They do that generally through pollination. Sometimes it's wind uh, carried, sometimes it's insect carried. But the pollen needs to go to, a, you know, a male pollen needs to go to a female reproductive organ. Some trees have male and female parts on the same tree. Some split them up like we do in genders. Um, it's highly variable. But anyway, let's just assume that it's a male and a female tree. Pollen comes out, it's expand, it goes through the landscape, but if the nearest female is too far away, there's no pollination and it dies. And so we have a lot of these things called living dead or, or zombie um, species because they're still alive, but they're not reproducing. So they're not replacing themselves and eventually they'll go extinct. And we see these legacy effects. Um, extinction debt is another term we use. So you're paying this debt from a past disturbance. It can sometimes be century scale. It really depends on the generation time of the, of the, of the species. For, for example, long-lived trees, it can be hundreds of years before you start to see that impact on the entire population. And uh, that, that means that we have, again, this slow process of co-extinction that eventually will lead to a, an ultimate collapse that's quite precipitous. Now, the concept of extinction is nothing new it's something that's always been around um how has how do i how to put this forward there's obviously different contributing factors to uh the cause of an extinction and therefore there would be varying rates of extinction uh, right now we're in the midst of a sixth mass extinction which means there's been five before. Um, give us an overview of of you know what contributes to an, ex, uh, an extinction. What, how does that that um, you know sort of relate to to the rate of an extinction? Does it happen over a, 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 an immense amount of period of time, or is it quite sudden? Okay, so yeah, we have to go have a little bit of a prehistory lesson to understand this properly. If we go back to the earliest evidence for life on Earth three and a half, four billion years. It sort of varies depending on the evidence. Um, there's, there was a long period of very slow speciation. And of course, extinction is happening during that time. Fast forward to today, and we've got this amazing abundance of different life on the planet. But approximately 99% plus of all species that have ever existed in the past, going back billions of years, are extinct. Now, that means that Speciation, the process of evolution that changes species based on recombination and genetic drift and all the other things, natural selection that creates species, that means that process keeps slightly a pace of extinction on average, otherwise there would be nothing left, right? So you think, think filling a pool, you've got a leak in the pool, that's your extinction, and if you've got a tap filling it, that's your speciation. If speciation, the filling, isn't as fast as the leakage, then the pool level goes down and eventually there's no more water, right? So on average, that's what happens. But the thing is, uh, in evolutionary terms, uh, it's not a slow, gradual leak and a slow 
input of water from a tap, it's a great bloody earthquake comes on and then takes out half the pool water in one go, and then there's a slow filling again. So extinction isn't a gradual. It's always happening, uh, but it, it tends to be um, interrupted by these mass events. And these are what we call the mass extinctions. What we call a mass extinction is a little bit arbitrary. It's these really big events that we see in the uh, paleontological record. Uh, the general accepted definition is at least 75% of species going extinct within about two and a half million years. Two and a half million years is a long time. <laughs> Our species hasn't been around that long. Uh, so it sounds like something that's, you know, it's, it's a concept that we can't really get our heads around. But that's actually, geologically speaking, over the history of the Earth, that's a heartbeat. Now, have we lost 75% of our species today compared to, say, several hundred years ago? No, we haven't. But the rate at which we're losing species is as great, if not greater, than what we saw during those two and a half million periods during mass extinctions in the past. Of course, there were hundreds of other smaller extinction events that didn't quite meet that 75% threshold. But basically what it's saying is that extinction is kind of chaotic through, through geological time. If we continue at the current observed and predicted rates of extinction that we see today, we will achieve 75% threshold. Again, it's, like, it's an arbitrary threshold. It's big. <laughs> uh, we'll achieve that within centuries, not two and a half million years. And that's entirely due to our endeavors, humanity, and how we've changed the planet. And I'm just going to ask, because a lot of people associate ice ages with a high extinction rate, but talk to us about extinction rates in ice ages versus periods of warming, like we're in now. Yeah, so yeah, that was sort of the common assumption through much of the last century was that cold was bad, um, that great big icebergs and, and glaciated valleys and things like that would push species away and they would all go extinct. Turns out um, species, yes, they generally did, they did move their distributions, but it was more likely that the, the rapid warming events that precipitated these big extinctions uh, because it turns out that most species have uh, a much better capacity to adapt to cold than they do to heat. Uh, there's a lot of physiological reasons for that. Uh, but also that the heating tends to come on much quicker than the, the cooling. It doesn't suddenly, you know, it's not minus 40 tomorrow. It's a very gradual process where heating can actually happen. Even in, even in the last, say, few hundred thousand years, the, there's been heating events that have gone, you know, 10, 12 degrees in, in less than a century. You know, that, that's massive. <laughs> um, that's the kind of huge transition that species really can't adapt to quick enough. Now, every species has the capacity to adapt in some way. As I, as I mentioned, behaviorally, uh, there's a physiological adaptation called physiological plasticity. And then, there's, of course, there's evolved uh, adaptation. You can adapt to new... Uh, if you have long enough, your genome has the requisite diversity to be able to sort of, through natural selection, choose genes that are more adapted to a new environment. But that generally takes quite a bit of time, quite a number of generations. Behaviorally, today I can say, oh, it's hot, I'll go inside. Tomorrow I say, okay, physiologically I might um, build up some capacity to sweat more. Uh, but then in the long term, I have to sort of change my genome so that I can handle, I don't die at 45 degrees, I might die at 50 instead. So the, 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 the importance of warming now we understand to be probably some of the worst forms of climate-driven extinction throughout all time. 
And how does that compare to other contributing factors such as uh, land clearing or, you know, varying land use, pollution, uh, even even concept of colonialism? You know, if we go back just a few hundred years and introduce species and so on, where does climate change rank in terms of the factor? Yeah, it's funny, you know, there's been a lot of work recently about this whole concept of ranking, which is the worst. Humans love to rank things and put things in boxes, top 10, you know, bottom 20, all these. Uh, it, it's kind of a it's it's kind of a distraction in, in, in extinction dynamics because they're all bad and they kind of interact in very complex ways. So we don't we don't tend to focus on what's the worst, what's the least worst. Um, in the past, there is, however, no question that habitat clearance, so vegetation clearance, has been probably the main driver since the onset of the Industrial Revolution, really, that has driven more species to extinction than anything else, and will continue to drive things to extinction over the course of the next century or so. We've changed the surface of the planet dramatically. But that's in the past. So, yes, there's still clearing going on, unfortunately. There's still... Um, habitat conversion, which is a nice way of saying destroying habitats. But if you look at the pace of land change versus the pace of climate change, climate change is overtaken habitat degradation as, as a principal driver. And it will for the foreseeable future, especially if we get these kind of cascade precipitous declines happening that our models are predicting now. It's not to say that habitat loss isn't a bad thing. It is, but it's probably shifted uh, or will soon shift from being the dominant driver. Of course, as I said, there's a lot of interacting disturbance drivers like um, invasive species through, as you said, colonialism and how um, pollution is affecting the dynamics of interactions of species, you know, the accumulation of microplastics. We still don't have any real idea how that's changing the resilience of ecosystems. We think it's bad, it probably is, but it's very difficult to measure at that scale. So all of these things interact. We, we did work many years ago talking about what we call extinction synergies. So let's say that you lose a certain number of species from habitat loss. And then a certain addition of species are lost from uh, climate change. A certain number of species are lost from some sort of pollution effect. Well, if you just add those up, you say, well, okay, we, we're going to lose 20% from this and 10% from that, 5% from that. That would be 35%. But it doesn't work like that. They actually interact to make themselves make each other worse. So you can get that 35% actually is probably more like 75 because of they make each other. It's like when you have a cold and then you get exposed to the flu. You're already immunosuppressed or something. So something has affected your physiology. You're tired. And that's why you get sick because you're already compromised. It's a little bit like that interaction in a, uh, in a body's health. Um, but this is at sort of the ecosystem scale. And because you love the ranking, we're not <laughs> going to talk about ranking, but Australia and New Zealand are regarded as some of the, I guess, let's call them hotspots in terms of biodiversity loss and so on. Just touch a little bit, perhaps more in your case on Australia. How bad is it? Yeah, well, Australia is in certain groups of species, um, we're doing very poorly, like mammals. I think we're the, still the world record in mammal extinctions. Um, that's contemporary man, ma, mammal extinctions going back, you know, at least um, five decades or so. Uh, and we'll continue to lose them. Uh, but mammals are also the thing that we know the most about. 
so we tend to look at the big furry things first and then birds are probably a close second we tend to forget about reptiles and amphibians uh, our reptiles are doing a little bit better but our birds are doing poorly new zealand of course birds have probably been the worst hit through um right up from the first human peopling you know going back maori to to european invasion um, yeah. And so it kind of depends on the area. New Zealand obviously has a very unique biota because of its island um, context and its isolation from Gondwana several hundred millions of years ago. So in a lot of ways, New Zealand has a special set of extinction circumstances and um, susceptibilities. Australia being much larger has the continental momentum to be able to withstand some of those smaller level perturbations. Not Nonetheless, both countries have been massively changed since, especially since European uh, invasion. Um, but that, of course, doesn't say that there wasn't any change before that. Humans change an environment, sometimes for the best, sometimes for the worst, as soon as they get there. It's, uh, it's, it's really a process of the intensity of that change um, and how, uh, how many people are living on the landscape. So let's dive into your paper a bit more. I know we've already kind of been talking about some of the takeaways from that, um, but you published this at the end of last year and it's estimating the impact of co-extinctions on vertebrae from climate and land use change. Correct me if I'm wrong, I believe this is a continuation on from some work you published with your co-author in 2018. Yeah, that's right. So co-author Giovanni Strona, who... Um... Italian, obviously, a friend, a friend of mine. I uh, met him back in, oh, when was it, 2017. Uh, he was at the European Commission Research Agency based in Ispra in, in northern, north, northern Italy, not far from Milan, lovely area. Uh, I happened to be in Italy for some other work, and we, we met up at his institute. He subsequently got a job at the University of Helsinki. He came and visited me here in Adelaide for a while, a little bit of a, um, an exchange. Giovanni is a specialist in network theory, and network theory is a mathematical way of linking units, um, and units in this case could be species, and that's kind of how we treat them. So a network theory provides the linkages between these units, which we call nodes, and it's a whole mathematical area. It's actually developed for physics and, and internet technology, really. Um, that's how the, that kind of mathematical uh establishment happened and we've adopted a lot of those processes and then of course changed them according to biological principles so giovanni and i back in 2018 we put together work that looked at what we called extreme uh temperature change so we're looking at like 10 20 30 degrees of cooling and or um heating and the main impetus was, for that was it was actually a very weird little paper that was published uh back in i think 2016 that said that um, and a lot of your listeners might not be aware, but there are these wonderful little creatures called tardigrades or water bears. And there's lots of different um, common names for them. And they're almost microscopic uh, invertebrates with, um, they're not insects. Tardigrades, they, they live in almost every environment and they're known for being, well, extremely cute. <laughs> it's one of my favorite species. They don't even have mouths that we call mouths. They have these sort of weird kind of cylindrical, suction-y, rotating things. And they have claws on little fat uh, pods that are for feet. And they, they kind of look like a cross between a bear, which you can get the, the water bear. That's where that comes from. Um, a tick, 
and uh, you know, um, a velvet worm. It, they're just a weird, beautiful thing. But you can cook them, you can fry them, you can freeze them, you can shoot them into space, you can bury them under the un, un, 300 meters underground. You can do you can do whatever, and they still come back. They have this marvelous physiology that can adapt to almost any extreme. They're, they're, we call them extremophiles. <laughs> they like extreme conditions. They, uh, so this one paper came out and said, basically, well, if the entire world turns to shit and everything dies, at least we'll still have tardigrades because they're these physiological superheroes. Well, as ecologists, we kind of scratched our heads and said, well, does that actually make sense? Because, of course, nothing lives in a vacuum. We all depend on other things. So we put together this work that tried to look at the extensiveness of those internet, those connections that included tardigrades and looked at how tardigrades, how resilient they were in an ecosystem sense. So yes, they can tolerate themselves a lot of loss, but if their resources go extinct, it doesn't matter how tough they are, they're still going to go extinct themselves. So that was a really sort of a demonstration that all things are linked and that we underestimate our extinction rates if we only look at the individual species and their physiological limits. Fast forward a few years and we started this work to look at, okay, well, that was kind of a theoretical approach. We wanted to look at actually predicting the rates of loss that we are underestimating from current levels of predicted climate change to the end of the century. Um, that was really putting into context of what we're seeing now and not just a theoretical, oh, you know, plus 10, minus 10 degrees, which would be catastrophic, but we're already getting to, to the area of three, four, perhaps even five degrees looking plausible by the end of the century. Um, no, that, that's just insane. We've sort of abandoned 1.5. I know that's not a popular thing to say amongst the, the cons kind of conservation community, but if we could keep it under two, we'd be doing extremely well at this stage. Um, if we hit three or four, that's kind of getting into the catastrophic mass extinction stage. Um, that's both in terms of what we've done before in terms of the catastrophic extreme heating or cooling scenarios as well as what we're seeing from our models now that link them to actual climate change. Now, a lot of people say, oh, you know, it's a model. <laughs> you could be just as wrong as you could be right. Well, I think that demonstrates a certain misunderstanding of what models do. One of my favorite quotes is from a, a now dead biostatistician named George Box, who said, all models are wrong, but some are useful. You can't predict the future. Um, so by, by definition, a model is a simplification of a complex system, right? You can't get every element in a complex system yet. So what you do is you try to get the major drivers of how systems change, the major agents within that system. And then what you do is you contrast scenarios. So we're talking about relative truths. I'm not saying that this is going to happen or that's going to happen, but if, if I could, if I pose two different scenarios to this system, this model, I can tell you which one is more likely. Another way to look at it is this one is least untrue versus that one, right? Mm. So it allows us to make decisions that are more informed. So we're not going to say that, you know, there's going to be this many species going extinct. We're just saying that if we make this decision or we cap temperature rise to this amount, that means that we're going to have, on average, a relative reduction in extinction by this magnitude. So that's how models work. Now, it's a model. It's wrong. Of course it's wrong. We have to make assumptions. We have to take uh, data sets that aren't global in expanse. We have to make some forecasts about how things work. We have to take real data and sort of expand them to huge scales. And sometimes that's not feasible. 
But what we did do is we actually constructed what the world's biodiversity, that is the diversity of distinct vertebrate species, so these are you know, animals with backbones, at a, at a pixel level around the entire planet. So our pixels were 0.5 by 0.5 degrees latitude, long, longitude. So that's about 50 kilometers square, or 50 by, 50 by 50 kilometers. And in each one of those little cells, we, we counted up the number of species that our model predicted based on these fundamental principles from all the different data sets we combined. And then we compared those to the actual maps that we have from the uh, International Union for the Conservation of Nature, which measures the distribution of all species on the planet. And of course, not all species, but for the, the ones we have the most data for. And we compared those, our model, based on first principles versus actual measured distributions, and they overlapped almost perfectly. So we know that we're pretty good at predicting where diversity is now. So by that extension, we thought we were pretty good at predicting where we're going to get the most losses and by what magnitude. Again, a relative truth kind of scenario. And so we've, we're fairly confident that we're not too far off the mark. Whether it's 20% or 30% or 27.2, we don't know. There's a certain amount of uncertainty in these models, of course. But we can say that if we're you know, two to three degrees of warming, we're looking at potentially achieving um, you know, 30 up to maybe 40, 50% loss within this kind of time frame. Now, that's another thing about this particular model, and maybe you were going to ask me this question, Emma or Ben, but it's not extinction per se. We were specifically modeling diversity loss. So the way I describe that is, look out your window today. Count up all the number of animal species that you see. Let's say you see 10 species. You see, a, I don't know, a bird, a couple birds, maybe a betong, uh, you know, koala, like there's koalas all over the place around here. <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. Um, we're only looking at vertebrates. Forget the invertebrates for the moment. And then in 50 years, you look out that same window at the same time, same time of day, same season, and you count the number of species that you see. Chances are you're going to see about 20 30% fewer species. That doesn't mean the species has gone extinct. It could be somewhere else. It just means that on average in any given spot, you're going to get a reduction by this amount. Does that translate into extinctions? Ultimately, yes. But we have to take into account the entire range of a species, how many individuals in those populations there are, before we can start to talk about total extinction of a species. That is the loss of all individuals. That's actually our next step. We're sort of working towards that outcome. But for right now, we're really just talking about relative loss. But I mean, given all of the interdependencies of the species, assessing the data at such a scale, that would have been hugely challenging. Um, how powerful was this computer that you were working with? <laughs> well, we used one of the EU's top supercomputers um, that most academics have access to these computers through institutional arrangements. We do in Australia as well. Um, Giovanni just had a really good access to the one that's based in Finland, funnily enough, considering he was yeah. in Helsinki for a number of years. Um, because you're making it sound easy. Like there's a lot of work. <laughs> yeah, that goes into uh, this. and you know, all credit to Giovanni. He did the the lines share the work. Um, it's 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 multiple. When I say multiple, tens of tens of billions of iterations of these models that look at any possible out, outcome or contingency, and we're trying to combine all that uncertainty into an average response. Um, and these models have a lot of complexity. So we're we're, we're doing. 
the individual species, but of course we have species that are spread in different communities all around the planet. And then within those communities, there you know the top predators and then the, the mid predators and then the, the big herbivores and then the small herbivores. We have plant effects, we have invertebrate effects. We also have migration effects. So uh, one species can move to this other community over here. Now that can either result in a success in that it invades successfully, it finds a, a niche, it finds some food. It's outcompeted maybe by the indigenous species in that area, um, or it can become a food source itself and perpetuate uh, a better resilience to that species. There's species can also adapt to a certain amount of warming within their particular environments. Warming doesn't happen uniformly over the entire planet. So of course, some communities are experiencing it much faster than others. Um, we have also the um, component of trait uh, diversity. So that's sort of relate, link, links a little bit back to that idea of ecological function. So you have a number of traits, how big you are, um, how you breed, um, what your oxygen consumption may be, blah, blah, blah. All these different things that allow you to adapt to particular environments better or worse. So putting all that together means that there's a bucket load of <laughs> um, computations that have to happen at each iteration. And we do this billions of times. And that's why you need these supercomputers to do it. Because you're essentially, well, it's, again, it's a simplification because it's a model, but you're, it's a virtual earth of species. Uh, and, we're, and we're trying to push buttons to see what would happen if we did X. That's how these things work. But yeah, I, I deliberately tried to stay, steer away from the maths when we're talking about this sort of thing because it's just lost on people. Um, and I mean, I, it, gets, it gets me going, but it doesn't, it doesn't float everyone's boat. <laughs> now, this modeling focus on vertebrates. How can we relate this to us as humans um, in terms of, you know, some of the uh, sort of themes you would have got from, from the result. How does this, because you've spoken about from a food web perspective, predators, pollinators, that kind of stuff. But us as humans, you know, climate change has an impact on our food source, whether it's agriculture related or those that eat meat and so on. Uh, how, how can we relate or translate some of the outcomes of this, of this model to us as humans? And, you know, again, if we stay within the 1.5 or 2 degree, if it goes to 3 or 4 degrees above, how does that impact us? So, yeah, modeling non-human species is sometimes a lot easier because we have a very defined set of capabilities and, and, and limitations within a species. Humans are quite different in the sense that we have technology that allows us to buffer ourselves from extremes. For example, we go in the house and turn on the aircon. Uh, or in the car when we're driving to work, or you know, we put on clothes when it's too cold, or we can seek medical attention, um, interventions that aren't otherwise available to most species. Food supply. A lot of us live in places that don't grow enough food to support our populations, but we bring it in from elsewhere. Transport is a huge component of the large human population that we have now. Tech, items are made here, they're used here. You know, transport is a huge component that's, that's basically our economy right there, is allowing people to live in places that they wouldn't otherwise be able to live in because we can just shift resources around. We can also increase the productivity of an otherwise um, passive environment through things like agriculture. We've been doing that for 12,000 years. 
more or less, that we can suck nutrients out of the ground and turn them into cows that then people eat or crops or, you know, that's our food source. But 80% of our food crops on average globally require some form of animal pollination. Half of that comes, comes from bees. One species of bee, the Apis mellifera, the, the European honeybee. So if, let's say that European honeybees disappear. We're screwed. <laughs> we really are because, you know, one in six mouthfuls of food on average globally comes from one species. Now that, that, that blows my noodle. Not only is that the case, but of course the human population is still growing and it will for the foreseeable future. There is a slight potential of peaking near the end of the century, depending on certain scenario. We do scenario modeling for humans just like we do for climate. We'll still have to, at current projections, we're still going to have to double our caloric or energetic production of food by 2050 just to maintain where we are now. And of course, not everyone gets all the food they need. That's a distributional issue. Um, up to a billion people on the planet suffer from some form of malnutrition or nutrient-related immunosuppression or some other thing. So we're still not getting enough. So just to stay where we are today with you know one-eighth of the world's population suffering from some form of um, nutrient deficiency, shall we say, not outright hunger necessarily, but nutrient deficiency, just to maintain where we are, we're going to have to double our production. Meanwhile, we're losing all these species that do stuff for free. If we, if we had to go out and pollinate everything by hand, we couldn't do it. So, plus, then, of course, you get the effects of direct uh, environmental extremes affecting our yields. For example, for every one degree of warming, we lose about 6% of our wheat production. So humans going up, species that pollinate and do other things for us going down. Um, we're also increasing the proportion of our uh, individuals within middle classes. That means eating more meat, unfortunately. That means a higher consumption rate in its own right. So everything's going in the wrong direction. <laughs> so hunger and hunger of food and, of course, that water is very closely tied to that. Those kind of um, conflicts that will arise and are already happening uh, will continue to pr present a lot of political issues and, and, and warfare, or at least conflicts will result as, a, as because of that. We see that in lots of places that are already sort of politically unstable, and it will get worse. Now, the, we're getting into sort of really uncharted waters here because it's difficult to predict all of these very unpredictable components in a complex system. We are part of a complex system that's embedded within the biosphere, which, which itself is a complex adaptive system. But one of those corollaries, of course, is if you get localized collapses of food production, you're going to get refugees. Um, some back-of-the-envelope suggestions show that we could be having all other things being equal, ignoring climate change, current political instability, um, uh, that we could be sort of in between 80 and 120 million refugees coming out of Africa every year by the end of the century. Um, most people think, oh, refugees, they end up going to wealthy countries. 80% of all refugees today end up in other low-income uh, low countries. They take on the bulk. So these are the countries the least capable of taking on this extra burden. So this is where you get um, all, you know, uh, people fleeing borders, uh, 
refugee camps, um, famine, um, uh, warfare. And so the spin-off of this is more and more resources that are um, sequestered by fewer and fewer individuals, leading to more and more conflict, and ultimately more people suffering um, on, than they are today. And that's, that's a cascading effect of environmental resource loss, and we're, we're seeing that happening now. If you go back to sort of probably most of the major political upheavals, mass refugee migrations of the last 50 or so years, most of them have an environmental trigger. We can, we can say, oh, it was this leader that made that decision that pissed off those people that led to that conflict. But if you look back, it ultimately comes down to a resource penury. And environment sets the stage for us to get aggro with each other. And when you're hungry, uh, when you're thirsty, you don't really care about the welfare of your neighbor. You just want to sate that interest. We're very basic in that sense, and, and all species are. And that's, that's completely understandable based on our biology. But that's, we transform that into a political relationship and a political outcome. So I always say to people, you know, look, the future is not going to be as nice as it is today. How, how not nice it is 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 somewhat open for debate, and this is what we're trying to do by, by putting these, together these models. But we're not going to prevent a lot of suffering. What we can do, though, is that we can make it less worse. <laughs> we can, we can uh, like I always say to my students, you know, the future is going to be shittier. It's just how shitty it's going to be depends on us and the decisions we make. That kind of gets me out of the bed in the morning. If, you know, when I was a bright-eyed, bushy-tailed undergraduate, and I thought I could save the world. Um, that, was a, that was a good incentive to do what I was doing. But then when I realized that I'm not going to save the world, and it's only getting worse, everything we're measuring is getting worse. So why do I bother? When I made the transition to the, I can't save the planet, but I can make it less shitty, maybe, that keeps me going. And, and, I, and there's been a real psychological shift in people in my discipline, at least, towards that goal. And a lot of people say, well, that's very pessimistic. And I think that's more optimistic pessimism in that you, you can have a role. It doesn't mean that you're going to prevent disaster. It just means that disaster won't affect as many people as badly as it could otherwise be. And, and that's, that's actually is quite calming and, and um, fulfilling as a, as a scientist, if we can do that. Again, it's a big if, because I don't make the political decisions. Yes, I vote. Um, yes, I spend my money in particular ways, and that's one way of exercising my democracy. And more and more people are doing that, and that's great. But if ultimately society ignores these warnings, then they're going to suffer more as a result. So we're just really trying to get people to say, look, let's, we don't know the future but we can make more informed decisions about the probability of certain events arising. Yeah, and if you're grounded in reality, then you're more likely to be able to do the work to actually get the outcomes that are needed rather than walk around with, with rose-coloured glasses on thinking everything's fine. But this, this kind of brings us to the timing of your paper. It came out just before the UN Diversity Conference. Any thoughts on the outcome from that conference? Are you pleased with the takeaways there? we didn't we didn't plan it that way um but it was actually i think i think <laughs> there were four, three or four days left in the cop um when our paper came out so it wasn't right before it was actually during and near the end 
we had a few people um, present some of the work. I know that Tanya Plibersek, our environment minister, was there, and, and she was given a briefing about the work, um, and that it was noticed by a few people. It was actually the paper was just written up in the journal Nature Climate Change, which is a very big nature publication, um, just yesterday. So it, it's getting some notice, um, and that's great. I hope that it gets worked into the next IPBS report, the biodiversity assessment report um, for the next iteration. I'm not sure when that's going to happen. As a, um, a demonstration of the linkages to what the IPCC is doing versus what the, um, the biodiversity mob is doing. And it was recently, only a couple of years ago now, I think, um, acknowledged officially that the linkage between solving climate change and solving biodiversity crisis is, is, is so um, close that we can't really do one without the other. And I think this is just another piece of that puzzle that demonstrates that relationship. And how, how comes so? If we, if we lose societal capacity to behave and responsibly and make long-term decisions in, in the appropriate way, in other words, if we have enough food, we can make lots of good decisions about you know, mitigating climate change. But if we're just trying to scrabble around for something to eat, you know, fixing the future is the last thing that we're going to think about. <laughs> so these are how these things are all interrelated. For example, let's say, um, I don't know, if I don't sleep well the previous night and I don't have to go to work the next day, chances are I'm not going to be bothered to go have a shave because it takes effort, <laughs> like today. Uh, the, <laughs> the, uh, so when, you're, when, you're in, when you have capacity, when you're in a good physiological health state, you have the flexibility to make a lot of decisions about your life. When you're really just thinking about, oh, my tummy hurts, or I feel sick, or um, I'm, you know, I'm depressed, you, you kind of let all those other things go because that's not your immediate concern. And that's scale it up to entire societies. As our biosphere collapses and it starts to affect our, 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 our standards of living, we're going to be less and less concerned ironically, about the future because we're more concerned about the immediate alleviation of our suffering. And that's what really concerns me. And we wrote a paper a couple of years ago about that the fact that all these challenges are presenting themselves, we know that they're bad. We can make some reasonable predictions of where we're going. And yet our political capacity seems to be going the other way. We have less and less political will to do, make big decisions because of all sorts of interrelated things, the way our economy is structured, the way that we still have corporate capture in our governments, that there isn't a, a, a true democracy anywhere on the planet. There's also always some form of corporate or financial capture. We don't make decisions that are the, for the greater good. We make decisions that are based on the, the acquisition of wealth, generally by a small proportion of society. Until we fix some of those things, we're not going to be able to get to make big, uncomfortable decisions that have to be made. And I fear that crises will have to be experienced before we start to think, hmm, maybe we should do something. And then it might even be half-baked by then. So, again, this is why I'm an optimistic pessimist, because it will be bad. It's just how bad it will be, I'm not entirely sure. That's a political decision. So if I want to go see a spotted quoll, if I want to go see a pygmy possum, do it now? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I have, a, I have a photo I took in, I was in the Kruger National Park in South Africa back in 2016, I think. 
took my daughter. I had a conference there. It was wonderful. Um, and I took this photo of a white rhino in the park um, that was kind of, it was dusk and it was kind of running away from me. And the, the, the exposure on the, on the camera made it look kind of like the, the rhino was a, a phantom, you know, sort of fading out. And I called it ghost rhino because as I was in the park, at that very moment, on average, two rhinos were being poached per day. In the biggest, most well-protected, best-financed national park in all of Africa, and they were still losing that many rhinos a day. And I, I, just, I just said, look, if you haven't been to Africa and haven't seen a rhino, go now, because the likelihood of seeing them in 20 years is pretty slim. Now, I, again, I don't want to put a time on that, but, but yes, if you have an opportunity to see something now, see it, because there is a decent chance you won't be able to later. So as individuals and following your mantra of making this planet a little bit less shit, which we actually have on record in a previous episode from you. Um, I couldn't what, remember if I had said that before. <laughs> it's good to be reminded. Uh, what can we, you know, we've spoken about political systems and, and, and you know, and it's the same arguments you now get when, in conversations about the whole concept around degrowth who should be leading the charge corporations uh, uh, leadership you know in terms of, of politics or us as individuals but let's just focus on us in, as individuals let's get ourselves out of this big pit that we've dug ourselves and what as a takeaway from this it's it's important to understand what is happening what could happen if we keep uh, carrying on with this trajectory that we're on what can we as individuals do to make that small impact? Yeah, you know, I, I, have, I have my canned set of answers for that, um, but I'm going to expand on that a little bit here because I'm, I'm sure I've said some of these things before, but before I do, I, was, I had a sort of a, a little discussion on social media the other day with one of my colleagues who was talking about environmental funding and how that there's a lack of environmental funding. And we basically came to the conclusion that there's, there's no lack of funding. It, it's, a, it's a choice to fund specific things like, you know, the national or the state budget comes down once a year, certain proportions allocated to health and then education and this and that. Some people win and some people lose. Almost universally environment is in the less than 1% of that. And that's everything, right? And we have special initiatives, you know, well, the koalas are going extinct. We, we should invest 10 million. And that's what we've done in koalas, in koalas. Now, thankfully the, corollary of that is that we're probably going to save a lot of forest, which saves a lot of other species potentially that live in those forests. But we do this sort of very piecemeal, one at a time kind of, oh, that's good. That's it's reactive. It's, it's reactive. reactive. We, don't, we don't have a proactive approach. And proactive approaches require long-term vision and funding. So in, in pressuring our representatives that, you know, we always whinge about not enough funding for schools and, and, and health, but that actually takes up over 80% of every budget, those two items alone. If we invested, if we even doubled to 2% or more, 3% of what we're spending on environment, that in terms, that's everything from restoration through to protection, through to offsetting, all sorts of components that deal with that, you know, feral animal removal, um, reintroductions, uh, plantations, you name it. If we, could, if we could put a little bit more emphasis on that, and I'm not talking about we'd have to sort of dump all hospital funding because that wouldn't be politically palatable. But if we can pressure people to say, look, environment isn't, it's not about a lack of funding, it's about a, it's about a choice. And if we choose to, to put more 
time and funding and effort into these these components, we have a chance of building some resilience into our systems. Now, that, that's just on the very uh, almost direct um, things that one can do in terms of how we address extinction directly. But there, there's a lot of, and I think this is where I'm getting into territory that I might have covered before, a lot of things that we can do through voting, through representation. In this country, anyway, we've been talking for ages about um, uh, integrity commissions that have some teeth. You know, so taking taking politicians to task about you know corruption to just you know um, dodgy behavior, and we in a lot of ways we do have a very corrupt system, but because it's legal, it's not counted as corruption on the international corruption perception index. It but it's it's an, it's a form of corruption, and that's essentially when political donations drive the decision making, and every democracy in the world has that some more than others. So by definition, as I said earlier, we don't, there isn't a democracy anywhere on the planet. It's all one form of a plutocracy, to some more than others. In other words, you buy the decisions. And that's, that might not be direct. You don't say, okay, if I give you 10,000 bucks in a, in a bag, that you're going to do this policy for, that helps me as my industry. But that's essentially what happens. So can we at least put more emphasis on integrity commissions and then move towards massive reductions in political donations and have more of a public funding system. These are all possible. These have been, these models and, and frameworks have been developed by political scientists for years. You know, we know how to do this. Again, it's a political decision. Other things, of course, that directly relevant to your audience in particular. Yeah. I mean, vegetarianism is one of the biggest things an individual can choose to do in terms of reducing your impact. It doesn't mean that you, re you make it disappear, but just, but you know, there's a, there's an old joke, you know, it's the woman holding the placard that says, save the planet, kill yourself. Because <laughs> ultimately that's the only, that's the only way that you really remove your footprint. Everyone has a footprint, but you can drastically reduce that footprint. And of course, all of the other yeah. things, um, including flying overseas. Uh, you, I, you know, I was a big hypocrite pre COVID about that in particular. Um, COVID really sort of taught me, you know, I don't, A, I don't have to travel that much and B, I shouldn't. Um, so that's really changed how I view things. But, but even other things that people don't immediately um, equate with environmental custodianship, and that's the choice to have fewer children. Um, there's no magic number. Well, there is in sort of a large scale effect, but if people made the decision that they were going to have one fewer children than they would have otherwise had. That, that's one of the biggest impacts an individual can make on their, their legacy and lifetime impact on the planet. Because of course it goes beyond their own generation. That's their legacy. Now we have the luxury of being able to do that because we have such high infant survival in, in wealthy nations like ours that we can do that. And we're pretty much guaranteed that those children are going to survive. I have a paper actually coming out in two weeks that looking at the relationship between child mortality and human fertility across low and middle income nations all across the planet. And it turns out the number one determinant of human fertility is child mortality. So if we get a handle on increasing child mortality, fertility will drop and therefore our population rate of changes will, will go down as, as a result. And that will put a lot, much less pressure on the planet. I, funnily enough, you know, contraception does contribute, but it's a very much a minor effect. It's actually more about child 
and mortality, which of course links into the sustainable development goals of the United Nations, reducing child mortality, um, increasing uh, uh, the prospects of, of young women in particular, education, um, the, the, the ability to choose one's reproductive life um, and being able to pace birth events and, and um, not be sort of under the yoke of uh, maternity for the, the duration of their entire adult life. You know, these, these are things that, that, that free people up to have a better life as well. So there's a lot of corollary benefits, of course. Uh, getting into dicey areas, we looked at religion too, because, you know, there's a common assumption, at least at that scale, that religion, inc you know, religious adherence increases fertility, which turns out not so much, you know. So, um, at the, again, at this scale. So there's a lot of little things like that that seem, that seem little, but actually can have huge impacts down and the track. And equality of health care as well. I mean, well, yeah, healthcare is, is a key to all that because, you know, again, think about coming back to that very concept of child mortality. If your children are guaranteed pretty much to, to survive, there's no need to have 15 or more <laughs> kids like, like we used to, right? Yeah, um, yeah. It, there's cultural elements in that. There's religious components to that. There's human rights. There's also, it's a very complex situation. Every time I write about human demography, I get death threats. It's, it's inevitable. Um, that just goes into the hate mail folder. It's, it's a growing folder, <laughs> but you know, it, it, if the message gets to broad enough community, of course these have to be ethical and they have to be non-coercive and they have to be culturally aware and sensitive. There's no one size fits all approach to any family planning or, or any other sort of thing that deals with human demography, but there are, there are good ways to do it. And, and health uh, is wrapped up into all of that. So yeah, that's a very good point. I think we're going to wrap it up there. I think there's a lot to, 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 to let sink in. Uh, there's a lot to think about, but Corey, thank you. Um, you know, on behalf of all of us, uh, our listeners and everyone else that's going to listen to this episode, uh, you're just like so many phenomenal scientists. Communication, we've said this so many times, but the way, you know, there's so many brilliant minds, so much brilliant work, but how it's communicated in a way that we can understand and actually do something with that, that's something you're brilliant at. And so that's, you know, it's important to thank you for that because we need more of that. So these are the kind of conversations we certainly look forward to. And, uh, you know, it's, it's the, the, ma the mathematics behind this, the modeling, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot to take in, but. Well, well, that's a very kind thing to say, but I'll turn that around too and say that the, the opportunity that your venue and what you provide to do that is an essential part of that process. Most of the time it's sound bites. I'll get, you know, 10 seconds on, ABC News, you know, between six and six, six ten, and um, th that's it. That's what people hear. This is this is an opportunity to go to dig into it and to discuss the complexity and the subtleties, and and then link these sometimes esoteric things like extinction to our own well-being and our and our standard of living. And that's the that's the disconnect I think a lot of people have is that why should I give a shit about you know a species of centipede going extinct in some rainforest somewhere that I'll never see. If we dig into that and have the opportunity to expose those relationships, people go, okay, well, I can't see the direct relationship, but I can see how, you know, the loss might make my life just a little bit more shitty. And I don't want that. And that's, 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 once that penny drops, and it can be a very, very light penny, um, you're still going to make a move in the right direction. And that's, I guess, this is, so I'm very thankful for this opportunity.
Well, it's only a pleasure, and uh, maybe we'll look at giving you a three-hour slot. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, we certainly will have you back on the show again, that's for sure. Uh, You you never stop publishing. Um, There's always going to be something that piques our interest again. So, uh, no, firstly, yeah, again, thank you so much for your time, uh, the amazing work that you do. And, uh, yeah, here's to our listeners, to all of us, making a little bit of a contribution to making this planet a little bit less shitty quote unquote <laughs> professor cory bradshaw thank you so much my job <laughs> thank you i think that's going to go in my headstone <laughs> <laughs> thank you for listening to the lentil intervention podcast if you found this interesting make sure you subscribe and share it with your friends 